Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Service. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love to utilize the power of story to find out how people have developed their mindset for performance. We talk with CEOs, coaches, athletes, actors, really anybody who considers himself to be a performer to gain a better understanding and perspective on how these people see the world. The goal is to dig deep with each person and find out about their mindset. We'll learn about their successes, their failures. The goal is to uncover great pieces of information that hopefully can help you as you continue to create your own journey. We'll talk with people at the beginning of their journey, those in the heart of their career, and those who are able to reflect back on the career that they've had. We are all a compilation of the stories that we hear and the stories that we tell ourselves. So as you listen, it's important to think about how these themes relate to your journey as you go beyond the surface with yourself as well. Today we go beyond the surface with a good friend of mine, Blake Barretts. Blake is an NFL agent. He works with a lot of professional football players. In the past, he worked with guys like Jermichael Finley, Bobby Ingram. Today, he represents guys like Will Galston and Adrian Claiborne. And he's also representing Jonathan Allen, who's expected to be a top five pick in the NFL draft in a few weeks. Blake is a really interesting guy. He's someone who I've enjoyed talking to over the years and just talking about the business of sports, uh, which he has seen many iterations of, especially in the NFL. So we have often talked about players' mindsets, and hopefully this conversation today is similar to one that we've had on our couch uh, just talking shop. Blake is an outspoken guy. If you follow him on Twitter, you'll see that he speaks his mind, and he believes in what his values are and what his morals are, and he's unafraid and almost unabashed in sharing those with the world. I think Blake's real. He's an authentic guy. He's not going to sugarcoat things, and you'll hear us talk about it. Sometimes I think he can rub people the wrong way because he is so honest, but that is who he is, uh, and he owns who he is. I think if you met some of his players and some of the guys he's represented, uh, they, they feel that honesty from him. They feel the no bullshit in him, and you'll hear that in our conversation today. The other reason why I wanted to have Blake on is because he was a Division One athlete. He played tennis at both Tulane and then Wisconsin. And Blake definitely does not claim that he has all the answers or that he's perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but he is someone who has experienced challenges, adversity along the way, and also uh, has experienced all kinds of highs, both from a high school athletic standpoint and even from a college standpoint. And he also has experienced the high of going off on his own and establishing an agency for himself uh, and with a team of people that he really believes in and that he has built something with. So I think there's a lot to chew on here. I think Blake gives great perspective on what it means to be an elite performer. He's around elite performers all the time. He's around elite organizations. And he'll share his ideas and his thoughts on that with you. So as we go beyond the surface with Blake Barrett's, I hope you go beyond the surface with yourself as well. And I present to you, Blake Barrett's. Blake, if you could, tell me about your upbringing. Tell me about what life was like for you as a child. I grew up in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, in a suburb about 10 minutes from downtown. I, uh, younger sister, younger brother, very active, played a lot of sports, um, loved my childhood. I always had a lot of kids in the neighborhood. Um, it was very much, we're out of the house, we're outside playing, we're, we're playing sports, we're making up games in the backyard, we're running around. Um, what sports were you into from a, from a young age? What were the sports? Everything. That, 
soccer, hockey, football, tennis, basketball. It was, I was playing a minimum of two sports every season until you get to the point of high school where you got to choose one or the other. Played hockey and basketball all the way up through ninth grade till we got to high school, had to pick one or the other. Always continued to play tennis, play tennis in college. Uh, but everything, it was just active. We were always active, probably because we weren't able to get outside so much here in Minnesota. So we had a, when we had the opportunity to, we had to double up. <laughs> and so, so hockey, tell me about hockey a little bit, because obviously you're in Minnesota. Uh, I'm assuming it's ice hockey, because um, hockey's a bigger deal there than it is in most places in the U.S. What position did you play? What was ice hockey like for you as a kid? Hockey was awesome. Um, I don't know if my parents loved it so much, dragging me to... Uh, these little ho-dunk towns all over Minnesota to play hockey tournaments. It's probably about 30 degrees in the arena, but but uh, parents were great. You know, now that I am a parent, I have a, probably a, a much fonder appreciation for everything that they did um, in order to allow all of us to continue playing sports. We were traveling all over the state, all over the country, um, nonstop. Playing hockey was awesome. It was, of all the sports I played, it was the most fun sport, I thought, to actually play. Um, and when, you know, when I, I've always played forward center, and when I got to high school, our hockey team, I think the majority of my hockey team was playing D1 hockey, and, you know, I would have been, I never played hockey full all year round. When hockey season came around, I played, and, and so I would, I would get passed up by the legitimate um, hockey players that were going to go play big D1 hockey, or, or fifth year high school hockey, or go play juniors, or go pro. And so I would have been, like, if I wanted to play in high school, I would have been, I don't know, third line, fourth line. And so I decided to, I played basketball all growing up, so I decided to play basketball in high school where I could, you know, have a chance at starting at point guard and stuff like that. So I just, hockey was more fun to me. I just wasn't as good at it, and my competition was ten times better being up here. Our, you know, we had one of the best teams in the state, probably one of the best teams in the country. Um, but it was a lot of fun. It was just we would also just like play pickup hockey. So there'd be like frozen rinks around us and we would just go out there and have pickup games on the weekend. It was just, it was just a lot of fun. There was always, always something on the, they, we could turn the lights on at like a, a rink in a park and go out there at eight o'clock at night when it started out, the, the, the rink would be lit up. Like something you'd see out of like Mighty Ducks or something. Well, that's, <laughs> that, cool. that's where Mighty Ducks was, was located, right? So it was I, actually, it was actually filmed at my high school. Really? <laughs> there you funny, go. Funny, funny story about that. Um, so I think I was in middle school at the time, and so all of us that were on the eighth grade Bantams team, or whatever team it was, we had the option of being extras on the other hockey teams uh, during the movie, and I chose to go on spring break instead. So <laughs> that was my, <laughs> I think my, my parents said, well, you can go to Disney World, or you can be an extra in Mighty Ducks, and I went with Disney World. I don't know if I regret that or not. <laughs> I think, to me, like, Disney World will be there, Mighty Ducks won't, although they did go D2, D3, and they kept going, but nothing, you know, one of the greatest movies of all time, if you grew up when we grew up, I think uh, that and Sandlot are, are, like, just iconic, iconic movies. Well, at the time, we didn't know it was going to turn into an iconic movie. We were told, hey, they're filming this movie at the arena, do you want to be an extra? And, and we didn't know anything then. Fast forward 15 years, no, it's some iconic movie, I would have... I would have chosen differently. <laughs> I'm sure. So, did you, so you said your siblings were also playing outside a lot. Were they gravitated to the same sports as you, or were they gravitated to other sports? Yeah. No, my, my brother, who's three years younger than me, um, we were definitely playing all the same sports. I think I played most of them at, at more of a competitive level. Um, I was just more competitive. I took it a little further than he did. He was 
he always was a, in my opinion, a better athlete than me and could have taken it a lot further than me. He just did it more for fun. I mean, he didn't he didn't end up playing hockey in high school or football in high school or basketball in high school. Um, he did it maybe in seventh grade, grade ninth grade, but just kind of fizzled out for whatever reason. But growing up, we were, you know. His friends would all come over, my friends would all come over, and it was a very, we would just inter, intermingle, intertwine the teams, play football in the backyard, did football in the snow, hockey, anything that, any ball, court, grass, anything that was available, we would go tear it up. And competitiveness, was that something that you had at a young age? Is there a, a moment in your life where you noticed that you were competitive, or was that something that was just sort of in your DNA from as long as you can remember? I think it's been in my DNA since I can remember. I mean... I'm back to T-ball era. It's just been in my system, positively or negatively. <laughs> it's probably, probably are, too competitive at times when I shouldn't have been. But. Are mom and dad, walk me through that. Are, are you more like mom? Are you more like dad? Where, where do you think maybe that competitive spirit comes from? I think a combination. My, my dad is pretty competitive. He's pretty intense. <laughs> and what did he do? Um, what did he do growing up? What did he do? Yeah. Um, sports-wise? Or career-wise? Career-wise, he was in he was in real estate when I when I was younger. Um, he was in the mortgage business and ended up uh, getting into the real estate business and kind of grew a company, uh, became a partner, ended up selling out his partnership, and now he's still heavily involved in real estate, still still working a ton, trying to kick back and relax a little bit. But but he's very uh, he's very type A. I don't think he's ever. He's not the type that'll just kick back and get a massage and go sit on the beach. He's he's still up at four thirty every day. Probably needs reads three newspapers before I wake up. And uh, well, that's good. I Somebody needs to read the newspaper now. You know, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I don't think he understands that you can actually get it online yet. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, he's he's old school. I think that's I, that's definitely where I get the work ethic from. Uh, he's just I don't think he's ever satisfied. He's he's. Uh, he's competitive, but it's he's he's got an appreciation for hard work. My my grandfather was very much like that. His father, um, very philanthropic, very matter of fact, sees the good in people, but um, but ultra competitive. Like you know, he doesn't you know he could probably go retire right now, but he's I think some of the things he's doing from a business perspective is really about finding deals and and as much about the win so to speak as it is if he needs the extra 30 grand or 50 grand or 70 grand or whatever that may be um but it keeps his mind moving it keeps him young and how about mom uh mom's awesome very nice lady um kind of runs our household uh she was in she was in real estate she was in apartment leasing until 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 my Either my brother or sister was born. She was working when I was young. I can't remember if she stopped working when my brother was born or my sister was born. Uh, she's originally from the East Coast, from Long Island. Uh, met my dad at American University out, out in your neck of the woods. And my dad came back to Minnesota to get his master's, and they stayed in Minnesota ever since. Where was dad from originally? Minneapolis. Okay. So- uh, a suburb of St. Louis Park, which is um, 10 minutes from Minneapolis. Got it. And did either of them play a lot of sports when you were younger? When they were when they were younger? Um, I don't think my mom did. I don't think we got any athletic ability from her. <laughs> and 
Um, you know, my dad was very active in play, and you can tell like he's a good athlete, but but he never he never had the he never had like the coaching and that we had access to. So he's a really good athlete that just has terrible form at everything, <laughs> whether it's golf or tennis or basketball. But you get him out there and have him run like he's still fast as hell. He's yeah. Just, and uh, and what was so so in high school you're a three sport athlete so uh, what was high school like for you were you just running around like a maniac or like um, what are your memories how do you view your identity uh, in high school yeah so high school yeah I played three sports I played you know football basketball and tennis and then each I played tennis at a at a higher national level so I was always having to you know I could go to basketball practice from after school from four to six and I'd have to play I'd have to get my tennis practice and lessons and, and drills and stuff in it at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. before school or 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. after practice. So it was a grind. Um, it was fun. I mean, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I was always much more into sports than I was the academic side of school. So that was what I looked forward to. Um, and, you know, I, and then when I was 16, I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So that kind of threw a wrench in a lot of stuff. And it, just, it, was, it was a... It was a weird, it was a difficult time just because I didn't really know what that meant. Um, you're 16, sophomore in high school, kind of think you're invincible and playing all these sports and getting your driver's license and it's a, it's a fun time and then you kind of get, your will gets turned upside down a little bit. And, uh, so I, you know, it was, it was a, it was just something I had to deal with. You know, I didn't know what it, really what it meant and then the more you get educated about it, the more you deal with it. How did you handle that as a 16-year-old? Because I would imagine you can reflect back on it now in a more mature way than you probably did at 16. Uh, what, what was 16-year-old Blake's response to hearing that? That's, that's pretty big news for a 16-year-old. Yeah, I mean, to me, I just didn't know what it was. I, you know, I had heard the word before, but I didn't know what it meant. I just like, so can I never have sugar again? Can I have candy again? That was the first instinct that came to my head, I remember. I remember my mom being kind of devastated. And so that kind of scared me a little bit. Okay, is this more serious than than maybe I'm understanding it? And you know, it was it was daunting. I mean, it was like you know that first week. It was like, listen, you got to get a crash course on how to handle yourself. And it was I already had a fear of needles, and now I'm being forced to like give myself five or six shots a day with needles. I mean, back then, now the technology is is so advanced that it's a needle that's you know a millimeter. Thick. Back in the day, I had to use a syringe and pull it out, and um, you know, I had to, the insulin had to stay cold, and I had to take like fanny pack to school and make sure it was refrigerated and leaving class in the middle, and and it was an adjustment. I mean, it was for sure an adjustment. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know anything, so it was just like it was tough. And then you know, playing sports, it's like okay, so then I'm getting. I'm getting lethargic on the basketball court or the tennis court. I'm not sure. Is that because I'm just competing at a high level and I'm tired? Is it because my blood sugars are low? Am I having a diabetic reaction? So it was just, I mean, there were times in the middle of basketball games, like I'd have to just take myself out and like chug three Gatorades or orange juice on the sideline. And then I go back in the game and I can't really move because I'm so full. It was tough. I mean, all the way through, you know, playing college tennis, it's like the same thing. I'm like, my blood sugars are low. I got to like, drink orange juice or Gatorade or something to get my blood sugars back intact, but then it's hard to play a collegiate tennis match when you just chug three Gatorades and you can't move on the tennis court. So, did you have moved? I, you know, I think it ultimately made me stronger. 
and uh, I've always been a big proponent of, of adversity does make you stronger and I've always looked at it like I can walk, I have my limbs, I have more or less have my health, I have a family, I have a business, like, I, have a, I have a lot of positive things going on in my life and, and there's a lot of people that have it a whole lot worse. So, you know, I, I try to get involved in, in JDRF here and, and I try to, you know, let other families and kids know that just because you're diabetic, you're, you're okay. You know, you can handle it. You can keep your blood sugars in control and you can live a very prosperous, productive life. And it's not the end of the world. There's, there's, it could be better, but there's a whole lot of things that could be a lot worse. For people that are ignorant to it, uh, you know, type 1 diabetics, I think, are, at least in my experience with them, have a very different mindset when it comes to their life than type 2 diabetics. Um, and I, I find the psychology behind that to be really interesting because type one in, is unlucky, right? Like it's, it's not something because of your lifestyle. It's, it's because of genetics or, or, or some scientifically based disease. Right. right. Uh, but type one diabetics are like, I, the ones that I know are like freaking maniac badasses are like, like a lot of them are like. Um, work workers, and they are, you know, a lot of them are physically in good shape. A lot of them are they they live with this, where they have to prick themselves all the time, but they yeah. are self aware, or they monitor themselves, and they're reflective. Um, and, and can you speak about like maybe was there a shift in you, and you sort of hinted that you became maybe grateful in a way because you were healthy other than this. Um, can you? Sh- sort of speak to a shift that may have transpired for you post-16 versus pre-16 uh, as far as how you looked at the world, or was it not that dramatic? Um, you know what? I I don't know if there was necessarily a shift. I just, I guess maybe the way I was raised was always that, you know, there's kind of no excuses, and you kind of go through life, and there's going to be ups, and there's going to be downs, and you deal with it. And whether that's ignorant or positive I'm not really sure but that's just kind of how I took it I was like it's given to me I'm not going to sit here and feel sorry for myself you know I got to get through it I'm going to try to try to not have it affect my life uh, as much as possible and then frankly even today like I probably you know if you ask the people around me or my wife like she'd probably say I should have it be at the forefront of my life more than I even make it maybe I put it to the back burner more than I should um, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to be as normal as humanly possible. Uh, but I, you know, I just see it. You know, I try to look at the bigger picture, see all things that are going on in the world, see kind of people having a lot worse. So I, I try to just, you know, I try to keep that mindset. And I know it's serious. And I know if I don't take care of myself, it can be there can be problems down the road. And um, I just try to find that happy balance. You know, it's tough. I don't want to like, I don't want to just be concerned about it 98% of the day where it's, it's taking over my life. I'm not enjoying my life, but I got to find that happy balance or threshold to where it is real and it can affect me. And, you know, you know now as you have children now, things go even more to perspective and you got to do things for them that you wouldn't necessarily need to do for yourself. And so all of all those things play into how I want to take care of myself and hopefully solve there. You know, 20, 30, 40 years from now. Well, you hit on, on three different pieces that I'm going to hit on. So number, number one is normalizing it. 
Um, okay, you still can go play all these sports. It may be difficult. You may have to chug a bunch of Gatorade and orange juice, but I'm assuming your parents sort of instilled that in you. Like, hey, we're still you're still an athlete. Like, you're still going to go out, kick ass at tennis, at basketball, football. Like, no, this isn't going to stop you. So they, in a sense, they can normalize it. Uh, and then number two, you said mindset. And I was before you even said it, I was thinking, like, we hear that word mindset. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of an ironic word because it's, the word mindset is not because your mind is set. It's because you're setting the mind. And, like, I almost wish it was called set mind because uh-huh. – what you did then was set your mind and it, honestly you hit on it which is it's probably the first 16 years of your life that set your mind to say all right i'm still going to compete i'm still going to do the best i can and and i'm not any different than the guy that i line up across the football field to or the tennis court or the basketball floor uh so you set your mind uh and then the third part is parenting uh which i was going to hit on which I, I have to imagine that your parents had a massive impact on the way you handled that adversity uh and i you know, I think of people that I know that had juvenile diabetes and there I grew up with one. One of my good friends growing up had it and his parents were always like, you know what? You're going to go do this. You're going to you're going to be fine. You're, you're OK. And I would imagine there are other people that get diagnosed with that that don't hear that message um, and instead hear the victim message. And, you know, uh-huh. this this is terrible and this is awful and and you should be anxious because of this. And I hear in your voice like this push-pull because in some ways you need to have the anxiety because the anxiety is why you you monitor it. The anxiety is why you're conscious of what you're eating and what your intake is. So there uh-huh. needs to be, in some sense, some anxiety, but then there also needs to be, I'm going to live my life and I'm going to you know, be in the moment. So that push-pull, I think, can resonate with everybody because we all have decisions in our life where – you know, what are we putting into our body to keep us from getting type two diabetes? Um, we need some anxiety about that. Like that's, that's healthy. But if we live like that all the time, that's not healthy. And for athletes, it's the same thing. Like if they don't have a level of anxiety or neuroticism or uh, attention to detail, they're not going to get in the weight room. They're not going to get themselves into shape. They're not going to work on their technique. Um, and they're not going to fulfill their potential. But the moment they step on the field, the court, the tennis court, the, uh, the ice, the track, whatever it is, that's where we want to have the I'm a badass, I can do whatever I, I need to do uh, and right. shift from the anxiety to what you're talking about, which is I'm going to live for the moment and I'm going to compete and I'm going to you know, give my full effort. I don't care if I have to down three Gatorades and three OJs. Let's, right. line, let's, let's slap my hands on the floor and get down into a defensive stance and, and guard somebody. Right, right. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think those are all good points. I think they're, they're true. Awesome. So you're, you're a good athlete in high school, but it sounds like tennis is the sport where you are starting to say, hey, maybe this is something I can continue to do in college. This is something maybe I, sh- I should start taking you know, pretty seriously here. So walk me through tennis. And I also am curious about your experience playing tennis, uh, when that started, at what age, because I find that a lot of elite athletes, if they start playing a sport like tennis – it helps them uh, in, in their other sports because tennis teaches you footwork. It teaches you how to compete one-on-one. It, competes, it teaches you that, no, you, you do have to bring your A game or else someone else is going to beat you. Dirk Nowitzki, that was his first, you know, first sport. He played tennis in Germany, and he credits that for a lot of his ability and his mindset uh, in basketball. But I'm just curious about your, your tennis journey and if you could start us what age you started at and then also how you ended up playing in college. 
Yeah, you know, I, I started at a young age. Um, just my parents played. Um, started taking lessons, did it casually, just like all the other sports, soccer, hockey, basketball, just kind of playing. And uh, it, you know what, it was funny because I, I recently asked my mom, uh, so how did I get into tennis? Because I didn't know. I mean, this is 30 years later. And she said, I was playing and taking lessons with at the local uh, like Lifetime Fitness type club. And a parent came up to her and said, does your son play competitively? I was like seven or eight years old. And she said, no. And he said, well, well, he should. And a random guy gave my mom a phone number to sign up to a local tournament. And I, she must have asked me if I wanted to play. I was seven or eight years old. And uh, like an hour away in St. Cloud, Minnesota, went to play in some tournament. Ended up either winning or get second place or whatever. And that was the beginning. There was a whole circuit of tournaments. And I started playing competitively and I loved it. My parents joined the tennis club when I was young and they would drop me off there at seven in the morning and they would come pick me up at seven at night and I would just start playing with whoever. But if there was a, a 70 year old man that wanted to hit the balls, I'd go out there and hit with them. If there was a 15 year old girl that would hit with me, I'd go hit with her. And I just, I would just jump from court to court. Um, I don't know if my parents were just trying to get rid of me for the day or how that worked, but, but that's how I started and, uh, and I loved it. And, I think for me, one, to your Dirk Nowitzki point, I I realized later in life that that had a lot to do with uh, with the other sports that I was playing. It gave me, to your point, you're, you're on the court by yourself, you have to get through things by yourself, you have to coach yourself, great for hand-eye coordination, footwork, you're moving the whole time. Um, it was great. And I think, you know, when I, when I look back at all the different things I played, they all impacted the other sports in a positive way, which is, you know, today you see a lot of, like, specialization. You see these kids that decide what sport they're going to play from 12 years old or 14 years old on. I think it's, I think it's terrible. I, I really do. Cause all these parents think their kid's going to be pro. But, um, and then, you know, I, I really, as I got older, I really liked the team sports better. I liked basketball better. I liked football better. I liked hockey better. Um, but, Given, given my size and stature, I wasn't going anywhere in those sports and probably wasn't going to play college in those sports. I had an opportunity, had an opportunity to play D1 tennis and, and get a scholarship and, um, and took advantage of it. And even when I got to college, I was already I was already getting a little burnt out. Because you know, it is, I always like the team aspect. And, and the only reason I even stuck with tennis through college was because I liked the team aspect. It was fun going on the road and whatnot but like I didn't really enjoy the 5am running session stadiums and I didn't really enjoy training room after practice and I didn't really enjoy a three hour practice and I didn't really enjoy you know that was that discipline I probably needed which is why I stuck through it um, because God knows where I would have been in college if I didn't have anything that was getting me up at 5 in the morning and had responsibilities all day long um, and, and when I was competing I enjoyed the competition but, you know, by the time I was a sophomore, junior in college, I was like, if I never see a tennis racket again for the rest of my life, I might be perfectly happy. Did so, you read? And, and, and now, 20 years later, I'm actually like, okay, I, I'm ready to get back on the court now. Did you read Agassi's book? I did. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just a, a freaking fascinating read. Uh, I think his, his ghostwriter or whoever wrote it with him just had a way with words that was remarkable. 
And uh, but I think the one message that you hear just throughout the book is I hate tennis. <laughs> and there's certain sports. Uh, especially, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, a lot of the individual sports where you are on an island, uh, sports like wrestling, sports like swimming, sports like cross-country and track, um, sports like, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm going to put golf into a different category, but those sports are all really rigorous uh, as far as the training and the condition that you have to be in, tennis, wrestling, track, yeah. uh, and, and, and swimming. And they're not glamour sports. Like, you're not, you know, being... Uh, you know, unless you're at the best of the best, no one's walking down the street and taking pictures with you because you're a D1 tennis player, track star, swim star, uh, or a wrestler. Um, and so they all are really hard on the body. Um, but then I think they're also hard on the mind because, well, it's, it's you versus someone else or it's, it's you versus a clock. And, you know, I think you, you don't get a break uh, to stand in the corner uh, and create space for your teammates. You don't go on no. offense like football or defense like football. You don't get to point blame at a coach for not putting you in or or taking you out. Um, so those sports, I love working with athletes in those sports because I honestly think like those sports often need they they need they need help uh, because a lot of times those yeah. athletes are are on their own and and it's so I think the more physical something is, the more mental it becomes because we put in all this work. And now we're saying, is it worth it? And is the juice worth the squeeze? And I think you could hear that in Agassi a lot of times throughout his life. He's like, this isn't worth it. And the only thing that was giving him satisfaction was winning a tournament. But that was more pleasure. Like that was like, you know, a pleasure aspect. It wasn't necessarily happiness. Um, So I I think those sports are amazing sports for young kids. Um, And then it's, it's hard, though, because those are the sports where you also see a lot of burnout. Uh, because it is so physically taxing and emotionally taxing, and your ego gets checked. I mean, when a guy just beats you six two six two, there is no one to point to but yourself, and right. that is that's deflating for athletes. But those sports teach because I think the best athletes in the world in football, basketball, soccer, uh, the hockey, those team sports have some of that individual mindset, which is like, no, that was on me. Like, yeah, I, I own that, and I want the ball you know, at the end of the game, like, give me, give me the ball, like, let's go. Um, and I think those sports teach that. So to your point about specialization, I think it would be great if there was a mixture of like gymnastics is another sport. I think of like gymnastics and tennis are two sports is that I think just give you so much foundational athleticism and so much cha- so many challenges men- mentally. Um, so I, I would imagine tennis even though you may have liked those other sports better, that experience even in college of, of not being a typical college kid and, and, and learning that uh, probably gave you a little extra extra juice. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't think people, the average fan, really realizes how ridiculously hard it is not to play tennis at the level that the like Nadal's and the veterans are playing and how great of athletes and how in shape they are. Because on television, you don't really get an appreciation for it. You see just a guy hitting a ball back and forth. They make it look almost like poetic and so simple. If they saw how that... It's almost like you can't really get an appreciation from TV how much a fastball from a pitcher is moving. Uh, if they saw how heavy those balls are and how ridiculously in shape those guys are, you can't take... There's no off-season in tennis. I mean, they have to stay in shape. Um, it's very taxing. I mean, I hated... I hated tennis practice. Hated it. I mean, it was just... Because I wasn't, I loved the competition when we played matches, but to be out at five in the morning just running sideline to sideline in drills and 
by myself with a coach, I hated it. And I did it because I knew I needed it, but I enjoyed football practice. I enjoyed hockey practice. I enjoyed basketball practice because you're still competing within the practice. In tennis, I'm just hitting ball after ball after ball. It's like, get me out of here already. But but in retrospect, it taught me a lot. Yeah, one of the things I love uh, doing when I work with universities is I like blending the athletes. So you get a tennis player with someone who's playing basketball, with someone who's playing soccer, and you have them share their experiences. And all of a sudden, the basketball player who hates running suicides is like, oh, wait, this really isn't that big of a deal. Um, You know, these people are just constantly running. And you talked about tennis, um, but I even see it in soccer, where soccer is such a fitness sport People don't realize how fit those guys are. Like, yeah. literally, they go to soccer practice, and they run for seven or eight miles. Right. Um, like, they track it. Like, these guys are just constantly moving. And I didn't realize it because – and then they don't realize how physical soccer is, like, up close when you are colliding legs and the fearlessness yeah. you need to yeah. take keep the ball. Um, so I think every sport you sort of look at from the outside in, and you don't ever get an appreciation for it until you're from the inside out. Um, so that's yeah. really, really I, I think of it the same way for, for soccer even. And I think in some of the other sports, you can take a break. Like a basketball player could take a break for three months. He's going to come back and be able to dribble, and he's going to be able to shoot, and it'll take him a little bit to get back into shape. A football player can take a couple months off, and he's still going to be able to run a route or block um, golf. And you can take a couple months off, and you don't have to be in tip-top shape to come back. Tennis, soccer, like, you take that time off. Like, it's 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 tough to get back. It just is. Um but it's interesting. It's interesting too. So you mentioned the word burnout. So I definitely see it in, in tennis. I see it in a sport like golf, actually, too. Uh, wrestling, sure. Track, swimming, those sports, uh, for sure. It is interesting because I don't see it in basketball. Um, I just, I just don't see the burnout uh, in a sport like basketball. I don't see it in soccer uh, as much. Uh, just flat out burnout doesn't mean guys' motivations don't waver, but I don't see it as much as I do in those other sports. Um, but it, and we're going to get into football in a little bit because I know that has a big place uh, in your heart now. Uh, and, and it is interesting to me being around football players where it's not necessarily burnout, but they don't necessarily love their sport. Uh, the right. football players, right. and that's one of the things that I've been amazed at uh, because. I grew up playing football like on my front lawn and like loving it, and but but I wasn't getting hit by a two hundred forty pound linebacker. Right. Um, and it is interesting. Like I worked with Maryland University of Maryland's football team, and it would be interesting just talking to these guys about you know do they love football? And usually right. when you ask them like why do they want to make it to the NFL, and it was almost always like I want to provide for my family. And right. you hear that in basketball. Don't get me wrong, but. Uh, it is interesting as far as going back to Agassi saying, like, no, I hate tennis. Um, I think a lot of guys, you know, they hate two-a-days. And, right. and, they, and, you know, I think some of them love the gladiator aspect of, of Sunday or Saturday for college football players. But, you know, a lot of them, there, there's fear there. Uh, there's real yeah. fear there. Even if they won't admit it, there's, there's yeah. fear there and anxiety there. And that's why it is really cool when you do hear from a guy like a a Peyton Manning or a Ray Lewis or a Tom Brady, um, you know, those guys who are Jerry Rice, who, who seemingly just love the game. Um, and, you know, I would imagine if, if I was running an NFL team, which I never will, I, I would I would try to find those guys who really, truly do love the game because I think right. I think people don't realize, like, a lot of those guys don't love it. They, they, right. they don't. Um, For sure. 
So, so go back to college real quick. Uh, how were you as a tennis player? What was that experience like? And then, and then take us out of college and, and how you got to do what you're doing now. Um, the college experience was good. I, uh, I started at Tulane for two years and, um, I really liked my teammates there, didn't love my coach there. And then after my sophomore year, everyone on my team left. They either transferred, turned pro, or graduated. And I was literally the only one coming, returning to a coach I didn't love. So I kind of determined at that time I was either going to transfer and continue to play tennis or, or maybe stay at Tulane and, and quit tennis. And I, a scholarship had opened up at Wisconsin, and the Wisconsin coach had recruited me out of, out of high school. I knew a lot of kids in Wisconsin, and frankly, I felt I needed the discipline still, so I decided to transfer up there, played my last couple years there. We had some good teams there. Uh, really liked the guys there. Is that a um, is that a higher level, I'm assuming, like of, of tennis? No, it was similar. I mean, at Tulane, we were... Uh, at Tulane, we were always top 25, top 20 in the country. Um, at Wisconsin, when I got there, we were typically 30 to 40. Oh, wow. So Tulane, then, Tulane was known as a good ten, as a really good tennis program. It, it was set up differently. Our, our coach at Tulane, I was like the only American that played in the top six at Tulane. Everyone, what they would do, because tennis only had four and a half scholarships, so what they would do is they would, they, we had a fall season in tennis, but our, but our competitive team season was in the spring. So what he would do was he would go find like a 23-year-old Swedish player and put him on a half a scholarship and bring him in in January just to play with us. But a half a scholarship is really like a full scholarship for the whole semester, second semester. Then we'd have like a top ten player in the country playing number one for us who was twenty three years old. It's, it was a it was a weird dynamic. So you have guys just coming in and out. In all the years I played tennis, and you know this, you probably played sports for a long time. There were like just very few like really good coaches I had, like just people that I could like. I don't. I, I just didn't. I didn't like the personality of our coach at Tulane. It had nothing to do with the expectations or the work ethic. Because I always wanted to work hard. It was just. I don't know. I, I there were there were two or three or four coaches my entire life of all the sports I played, all the different ages, all the different times that I could really point to and say, you know what, he was a great coach. He knew how to push buttons. He cared about us. He taught us. Um, and then there are coaches that are just like going through the motions, screaming at you, doing it for the wrong reasons, and I just instantly I lost respect for them. And once, and I don't think on the outside, I don't think people also realize that when you're playing a college sport, let alone a D one sport, um, people have no idea how much time you are actually with these people, and the, and that really bothers me. The argument that everyone makes about the NCAA athletes, these football players and basketball players and everything, that they're just on scholarship and they should be happy, they have no idea. And even when I look at, when I look at employees to hire for my business or interns to bring in, if you played a Division One sport and got through, and got through academically, and got through socially, and got through athletically, that says a lot about your resilience, that says a lot about your leadership, it says a lot about your responsibility, it says a lot about your accountability, because it's not easy. It's just, it's really not easy. If people knew I played tennis, this is a non-revenue sport, and we're up at five in the morning running stadiums three days a week, and we're expected to be at class at eight, and we're expected to be at practice at two, and we're expected to be done at five, and we're expected to go to study hall and training room till seven, and you turn around and it's eight o'clock at night, and you can barely keep your eyes open to even do any homework. 
yeah. forget about a social life. Like, so to squeeze that in also, which I did, I didn't sacrifice anything. Um, it was a grind. And yeah. it was, that's like real, I think that's part of the reason that I work so hard today is like, that's normal to me. That's just, it's normal. And I see you know, people coming in at nine and leaving at five. And like that, that mindset just doesn't, I've never had that mindset. So I don't understand that mindset. So one of the uh, things that I see is when kids graduate from college, their identity has been, you know, I'm an athlete. That's been what they've been in middle school, high school, college, and then they graduate. And a lot of times they are lost because they're used to waking up at 5 a.m. and running those stairs. They're used to, you know, hitting the bed at night and just crashing. They're, they're, they're used to this lifestyle that has been just what they've done, not even, I think, fully aware of it just like that's just what they do um how did you transition out of college and uh just walk me through that process yeah so i i I took a job out in new york in a sports marketing company uh like with with two months left to go in my senior year and i was working uh three days later after graduation so there was no break there was no transition i frankly i didn't know what the hell i was doing it was okay, college is over, I gotta go make money, get a job. And so I did. Um, in retrospect, I wish I would've taken more time. I wish I would've, like, I just didn't know. You know, I just, my whole college process, and then thereafter, was I didn't know. I, maybe that's a lot on me. I just felt like, okay, I don't know what different jobs there are out there. I don't know what different careers there are out there. It's like, I was like, I'm in the real world and I gotta go pay my rent. So I accepted a job, and, and I, in a perfect world, you know, I love sports, and I love business, and I love family, and, um, you know, the the more that I could incorporate those things into what I do for a living, I felt the better. I had an opportunity after about a year and a half to go work at a startup agency in South Florida. Um, I did that and learned the collective bargaining agreement and the salary cap structure, and um you know, we would pull in a fourth rounder here, a seventh rounder there, and I worked a million hours and I made no money. Did you um, know that you wanted to be a sports agent? And when when did that when did that come into your in your mind? I didn't really know that I wanted to be a sports agent. I didn't really know what a sports agent did. I, uh, you know, when I played tennis at Tulane, when I played tennis at, at Wisconsin, you have study halls and we're training in the same facilities. I was friendly with Brooks Bollinger. I was friendly with Lee Evans. I was friendly with Chris Chambers. I was friendly with Sean King and I, Erasmus James and, you know, Ron Dane or whoever it was. And I, and I kept in touch with these guys a little bit. And when I had an opportunity to work in a startup agency, I called these guys and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I may take a job in an agency. What, do you, what does your agent do? What's your expectation? Do you like them? Do you not like them? What do you pay them? You know, what do they do? And the constant the constant message that kept coming back to me is, well, I'm not really sure, or they don't do anything, or all I know is I write them a big check every year. And, and these guys were low-maintenance. These guys were good players, first-round picks, second-round picks, low-maintenance, intelligent guys. And so at that point, kind of a light went off in my head to say, you know what, if these are the quote-unquote most successful agents in the business doing this, then maybe there's an opportunity to get into this business and, and do it a little more hands-on, um, have some success in it, help these young men uh, become better on and off the field. And, you know, I just felt there was a tremendous opportunity. I, I 
and I got to know some of these agents. I wasn't overly impressed. I didn't. Maybe they were just comfortable. Um, the rep, the business had a terrible reputation. I felt that there was an opportunity to go in there and actually do it the right way. Um, so I have two thoughts that I want to add and, and sort of jump in on. Number one is your ability to pick up the phone or text or whatever it was and reach out to these people that were successful athletes and, and really get a perspective from them on all right, what makes a good agent or what doesn't make a good agent and you know pick up the phone. So number one, you took action there to say, all right, let's do some research. Let's, you know, let's, let's do some, some R&D uh, and, and sort of really go deep on what does this job entail? Uh, what are the best what is my network uh, saying they're looking for or what are they not getting? Uh, and just taking the time to use your curiosity. And I think curiosity is one of the biggest, it is, it's one of the biggest links to success uh, that we have. Um, and, and then the, the second piece is something that I did when I first got into this field was I networked with everybody that does yeah. what I do. Uh, and, and I didn't do that because I was hoping they would give me a job. I did that because I wanted to talk to them. I wanted to learn from them. I wanted to see what do they do? Why are they special? What makes them unique? What makes yeah. them better than me or more qualified than me? And what I found when I talked to the best, quote unquote, best people in my field was that they didn't really have much right. more than me. And right. it normalized it for me. And I would imagine if you ask Peyton Manning, if you ask Stephen Curry, uh, if you ask Ken Griffey Jr., if you ask these guys whose dads played their sport, being around it from a young age made them realize, like, no, I can reach this level. And there is a normalization that occurs for them because they're interacting with people like their dad. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by athletes who were around the sport at a very young age and saw that because I think, because I think when you uh, look behind those blinds at a young age and see, like, oh, wait, that person's a human. And like, uh -huh. I'm a human and I have some qualities that are kind of right. similar to that person. Right. All of a sudden that self-belief just skyrockets. And right. I, I think that's one of the issues we have as a society is that certain people get to see that at a young age and certain people don't. And I think a lot of where inequality comes from is, is just that self-belief. Like you had, uh -huh. the, you had this utter self-belief like, no, oh, I can become one of the top agents in the world. Like when I got into this field, it hit me. I was like, I can be one of the best people in the world at what I do. And that is motivation. That right. is like when you when you realize like, holy crap, like I can be one of the best in the world at what I do. You are driven. And so I think for a lot of athletes, especially athletes who are second generation pro athletes, like for Steph Curry, when they told him he wasn't good enough to play at Virginia Tech, his dad's alma mater, and that he could go walk on there, he said, screw that, like I can play anywhere. And he goes to Little right. Davidson and makes them an NCAA tournament team. And then, you know, when he gets to the NBA and they're telling him he's too small or he's too scrawny, and he's like, screw that. And my dad, I, I shot hoops with my dad and Larry Johnson and, you know, uh, right. Stacey Augman and whoever else it might have been right. that he was around from a young age. So, you know, I, I think – just so my point there is for people that are getting into something new it's extremely valuable that they try to find the people that are the best at what they do because a they'll probably learn something from talking to those people and b it creates this crazy self-belief that you're like oh wait that person is is a human and right. i think when we humanize no, people I totally, I totally agree. it's massive i mean that's a, that's a it's a societal issue because when you look at you know so many of the impoverished areas 
Um, that's why they're not saying, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. They don't know any. They don't know any that are their neighbors, their friends, their mentors. Their, they don't know the steps. It has nothing to do with whether they have the ability to or not. It has to do with everything that you just said. They have the belief that they can because that, to them, that seems like what it would seem like to me to be an, an astrophysicist or something. Something that's so ridiculously out of the realm of what I can do. Or, or pro basketball player. A pro basketball player, right? Like for them in their neighborhood, they're seeing guys who are on TV for a Division One basketball player, Division One football player, or playing professionally. And so for them, yeah, that it creates this self belief, like, oh, I can play pro ball. My friends growing up, none of us thought we could play pro ball. Like, exactly. there, there's one kid uh, that that we knew in high school that ended up playing pro ball, and you know, he he was also just better than everybody when we right. got to high school. But you know, I think he he also knew people that were doing it, and I think that. Right. That that made sense. My friend knew someone who was a doctor. So for him to go to med school for 10 years, yeah, that's 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 okay. He normalizes it. It goes back to what you went through with the diabetes stuff. It's like if we can normalize some things, then all of a sudden we don't fear it and, and we're maybe not as anxious of it. And I think yeah. that that's just with anxiety specifically and we have become this anxious, anxious society. Like the numbers on anxiety are, are just massively through the roof. And I think part of the issue is that we constantly are saying that anxiety is a massive problem when reality is it's just your brain protecting you. And, right. and the more that we can normalize it while still respecting that an extreme of anything is not going to be good. But right. if we can normalize anxiety and understand, oh, those butterflies before you go on stage uh, for your concert. Yeah, those are normal because your brain knows that you might get embarrassed up there. And that's OK. Uh, and, yeah. and, and just channel that into excitement. And the same right. thing for a football player, the same thing for a dentist, the same thing for yeah. um, a business person. So Absolutely. Um, so, so you're Absolutely. doing that. You're, Actually, it's funny go ahead. On the same topic, like. You know, knowing what I know now, I work with professional football players for a living. And the high school I went to, we were not a football, we were not a football school by any stretch of the imagination. But we had some really, really good athletes on our football team that didn't even play D one football because they didn't know anyone else around them that had done it. But they're these guys with the with what I know now, these guys could have played professional football. Forget about D one football. These were some of the best athletes. Some of these guys are better athletes than the guys I'm representing in the National Football League today. They didn't know anything. They didn't know any better. No one was helping them with the college process. No one had played D1 football before them. So the the, the idea was, when football season's over, I'm just going to go. I'm going to go play hockey, and we'll leave it at that. No one. There, our coach didn't send out one letter. There was no recruitment. There was nothing. And um, it's the exact point that we're just talking about: is that they didn't have anything around them to show them that they could do it. So the the expectation was, I'm not going to do it. You know, the same as what you were talking about. No one in my one of my friends ever thought we were going to play pro ball. It was never even a, it was never even contemplated. It was we did basketball to stay in shape because it was fun. Yeah. All right, we could talk all day on that, but I want to I want to get a little deeper into your story. So you're you're at this agency. You're 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 sort of making your way and and take me take me from there. So from there, this was probably like 2003, 2004. Uh, I was just learning the business, um, kind of. I was a sponge. I was working 12-hour days, making no money, just learning as, as much as I possibly could, talking to as many people as I possibly could, tracking down as many players as I possibly could. And I learned a lot. I mean, I, I learned a lot positively. I learned a lot negatively. I was at a startup firm. Um, however, the individual that started the firm came from being vice president of a big firm, so we had experience in the business. So I was, even though we didn't have a ton of clients, 
I was able to learn a lot about the business. And after a couple of years, you know, we picked up a client here, client there. Um, they were going to go through another capital raise, and I, I had set, I had set, just through just hustling, really, I had probably set the firm down with with ten or twelve first round picks over a couple of years span, and we just couldn't close any of them. Um, I was twenty three or twenty four, twenty five years old at the time, and I kind of, you know, we had kind of some conversations of. Of like, hey guys, I've done my job, but the reality is we're a startup company, we don't have any clients, and it's hard for us to sign those big clients because we're competing with the best of the best. And so they said, you're right, they were going to go through another capital raise at that time, and I said, guys, I'm gonna, um, I want to, I need to jump to a ship that's got a little more credibility, a little more resources, because I really feel if I continue to do what I'm doing right now, we'll sign some of these players. We just need a little credibility. And it really wasn't. The guys that I was working for at the startup were bright guys. Like, if they if they came in with me right now where I am today, they'd be really successful in this business. It was just, it's a really difficult business. It's really competitive. And no no player wants to be the guinea pig. So they actually helped me uh, get, a, get a job at a big firm in Los Angeles. So I went out to L.A. I worked there for, I was there, now this is probably 05, 06. And, um, I got to the company and, and they already had some first rounders and some pro bowlers and hall of famers. And I was just kind of the young 25 year old that came in and was just hustling. And I can, there was, I would pick up a, then I got certified and I would pick up a third rounder here and a fifth rounder there and, uh, just slowly built it up. My, my niche was really, I wanted to go after high character guys. I, I felt that from the beginning. I wasn't going to chase guys. Um, I wanted to deal with guys that I really wanted to help, and um, guys that guys that got it, guys that were mature, guys that were going to work. I always felt that those guys were not only going to be the best representatives um, for the company and for myself, but that their business decisions were going to be admired and respected in their own locker rooms, and that's ultimately how we're going to get more players. And I would I would fight with my previous partners a lot because we we would represent some guys that um, I didn't really respect or I thought were not the highest character guys or immature guys, but they might be top 10 picks. And I would say, guys, we shouldn't represent them. Or I would fire this guy. And they would always look at me like I was fucking crazy. Like, Blake, this guy's going to be a top 10 pick. Um, what are you talking about? And I just said, you know, I was just the kind of the naive, dumb 25-year-old that didn't know what he was talking about. But then over time, three, four, five, six years, my um, my thought process ended up proving correct. The guys that I didn't want to represent ended up fading out or getting in trouble or firing us. And the third and fourth round pick from Iowa that's a captain of the team started referring us guys. And so after about five years, I said, guys, everything that I said over this last five years that was completely ignored came to fruition. And so that really gave me the confidence that I knew what I was doing. And so after the 2009 draft, I decided to leave leave that partnership, go out on my own, start my own firm, um, and just kind of do it my own way, put my own people in place. You know, I I guess being naive is can be a good trait and it can be a bad trait. You know, I just, I didn't care. I was just like, I'm 28. If I fail, I fail. Then I'm going to get back on the bike. And it's not as if I was like, I have to be a sports agent. I have to represent NFL players. If it doesn't work, I'm going to be devastated. I was like, I know I'm good at this. I know I can do this. I would love to enjoy this. Uh, but if it doesn't work, you know, like, 
I'll find a path in this world. I'm not, uh, it wasn't, I didn't put like undue pressure on myself, uh, which again, maybe naive, maybe ignorant. I don't know, but. Where does that, am? Did, were you ambitious in the sense of like, did you always envision yourself running your own company or was that something that just came because of the, the situation? I always envisioned working for myself in some capacity. I just never thought about how I was going to get there. And so at 28, was I ready to go out on my own? I don't know if I was or not. Um, it probably was a couple years too early, but like I knew I was going to leave. And so then the options were, do I stay in this business and go to another big firm, which I'm making kind of a lateral move, or do I just say, fuck it, and go out on my own and take my lumps? And I was 28, again, kind of naive. I flew a bunch of people up to Minneapolis, Jaleel White and Barry Gardner and Jeff Diamond, who was the next general manager and president of the Tennessee Titans. And I flew everybody up to Minneapolis and sat in the conference room after the two, in July of 2009. I said, hey, Bobby Ingram was there, Will Allen was there, all these guys. And I said, listen, this whole business is broken. The same 15 agents are running the show. The same guys are going broke. The same guys are getting in trouble. The same guys aren't taking advantage of their resources. All of you guys in some capacity have been involved with the NFL and understand exactly what I'm talking about. So I want to go attempt to try to do this business and represent players in in, a, in the correct way. And fortunately for me, everyone bought in at the time. And we kind of stuck to our, our morals and our ethics and said, listen, we're going to build this thing one guy at a time. And it's still an extremely difficult business. It's still extremely competitive. Um, when I was 20 years old, I had never run a business before. I didn't know how to run a business. Like, I was flying by the seat of my pants. And made a lot of mistakes, did a lot of good things. And now, at 37, um, um, eight years into this business, this draft will be our, I think our eighth draft, I think our, the 2010 draft was our first, and this will be the 17th draft, so I think this is our eighth draft. We're finally, I finally feel like I got a handle on the business, and I finally feel like I know what we need to do, who we need to do it with. Um, and I feel like we're just the tip of the iceberg about what, with, with what we're going to go accomplish. Um, and I, there was never any doubt that I, I never had any doubt that I could be successful in this business. I, I feel like I can negotiate as good or not, if not better, with any agent in the business. Uh, the difficult part of this business is you're, you're convincing. 21, 20, 22 year olds that you can do that and 21 or 22 year olds that don't know anything about business can get inundated with stuff that really has no merit or, or anything to do with their careers they get inundated with bullshit, they get inundated with glitz and glamour they get inundated with names well if you represent Aaron Rodgers you must be good enough to represent me You know, and now that we have names and now that we've had success those same guys are giving us I guess the respect and credit when in reality I'm not really any better of an agent or worse of an agent because Adam Thielen had a good year or Jonathan Allen picked us or Jermichael Finley had a good year or Adrian Claiborne went first round um, or Kirk Coleman had a great year I'm, you know they just happen to perform on the field and you happen to know who they are and now you're giving me more credit because they had success on the field it's you're getting into bed with the people that you want to be in bed with. And 
Uh, it's interesting because you hit on character, and I, I know the NBA better than the NFL, so I'll speak in, in NBA language. You know, I've been in war rooms where there have been, you know, GMs who literally are red flagging guys, and they are, you know, I'm not taking this guy. Like, we're just not taking him. And before I, I saw that side of sports, I just said, you know, talent. It's, it's always going to be about talent. And I don't get me wrong. I'm not the guy that sits here and tell people that they can be whatever they want to be in this world. No, talent, talent matters. So uh, talent matters. But I think what people don't realize is let's say we draft that guy who has some character issues. Um, and, you know, let's just say the NBA, they, their contracts are – you get them for four years – uh, under yeah. the rookie scale, and so you get him for four years. And let's say he's he's giving you some issues, but he's showing some talent because he is talented uh, and he can do some things. You get to this point where you have him for four years, and now you're saying, oh well, he might have potential, or maybe he'll grow out of it, or maybe this will happen, or maybe that will happen. And so you're now in bed with him for those four years, and it's a headache and it's a pain, and he's annoying not just. Uh, his teammates, not just his coaches, but he's also frustrating the usher that has to see him every day when he comes in to the locker room. He's also frustrating the PR guy who wants him to do a radio spot and he doesn't show up. And he's also doing all these other things that impacts the entire organization and the entire culture. And oh, by the way, now it's four years out. He's produced for you. And now you have to sign him to a five-year extension. So you're basically signing up for nine years of a headache. Um, and, and I didn't realize that until I, until I really got into the weeds is like what this does to a culture. And, you know, it's different when you have an established culture and you bring a guy in that's a 30 year old who is now like, you know what, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win a championship or whatever it might be. But to bring in an 18, 19, 20 year old kid and to be with that kid for nine years, uh, and not realize like what effect that's going to have on your culture. And basketball is different than football, right? We're talking about one of 15 guys on a roster instead of one of 55 guys or whatever it is on, on an NFL roster. So I'm not saying it's apples to apples. But, you know, I, I started to realize, like, yeah, who we associate with matters. And who, who we associate not just matters for our reputation, but matters for how good we are at our job. Like, um, you know, when I work with people that are on time and that are into what I'm doing and are – bought in and we are on the same page we can do great work but when they're not i'm sorry i think i'm good at what i do i can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped it's just it's just impossible and a team works the same way uh i imagine the agent relationship is the same way it's like you can be the best agent in the world but if your guys aren't going to be a all in with you uh, loyal with you, and, and loyal gets thrown around a lot, and it's not always a fair word, but but in this case it is because you're investing in them uh, with the combine prep, and then you're investing in them with your time, and then they drop you six months or three months before their new contract. Um, so loyalty does matter in 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 your line of work. Um, so anyway, I, I say all that because I think character gets thrown around a lot, um, and I think sometimes uh, overused. But I truly believe that you can win with character, uh, and I think you can create culture with character. And that's not to say you can't have guys that make mistakes. We all are. We're all in. You know, not we're all imperfect humans. But it's got to be people that care about their character. Uh, do they care about it? Is it something that's valuable to them? Um, you know, one of the questions I love to ask is, would you rather be a good person or, or great at what you do? 
And, you know, I think a lot of people now are obsessed with being great at what they do. Um, but the, the people that also value being a good person, uh, I think it, it, it wins in the long run. Uh, in the short, the short run, the, you know, the first three years, yeah, that talent may win. But over a 10-year, 12-year career, uh, the guys who sustain it are, are the guys who sustain it. The comparison that I always give people is Kobe Bryant and Allen Iverson. You know, came in the league at the same exact time. And look, Kobe's not perfect. Like, right. most people that have interacted with Kobe say he's an asshole. Um, right. and, and certainly, you know, the sexual stuff that happened in the middle of his career, you know, he could take back if, if, if he, he would take back if he could. Right. But if you look at his work ethic, you look at his competitive spirit, you look at his drive, you look at his passion for the game, you look at his genius, his attention to detail, there are a lot of boxes that get checked with right. him and he's a good example because he's not perfect um and none of us are but he checks boxes that honestly iverson just didn't check uh and and iverson by the way for me like when i watched a guy compete when the lights were on very few guys competed like yeah. iverson i mean this yeah. guy he would do whatever it took to compete but yeah. when they ask him to become a sixth man or they ask him to adapt or adjust or shift his role or they ask him to come in for workouts or they ask him to work on his craft or work on his weaknesses or work on his body or, or eat this or whatever, you know, you're just not going to get that. And that, right. he, you know, this guy is one of the best players of all time and he's out of the league at what, 33, 32 while Kobe's winning the MVP. Um, so anyway, I, like to me, that part, that aspect of sports is just really interesting and it's cool yeah. to hear you thinking long having that long vision at 28 and now reaping the benefits eight, nine years later. Um, I think that is the case for most organizations. And look, a lot of times GMs get fired because of that short term um, uh, world that we live in. But if you can stick with that long vision uh, and play the long game, I think it's helpful. And I would imagine when you negotiate, like when you're getting into negotiations, thinking about the long game rather than the short game is really hard in the NFL because guys' careers are so short. Uh, but I would imagine that does that go into your negotiations at all when you're when you're thinking about players and where the best fit is for them? Absolutely. And it's it's, it's, it's funny because uh, we just signed a new player the other day, a veteran, and I talked to the GM of this team and the head coach yesterday, and it was really rewarding for me to hear, like, Blake, we're really glad you signed this player because we know the attention that you're going to put in, um, which ultimately is them saying, we've watched, we've recognized the players you represent, we understand how hard you're going to work. And they know selfishly that by me now representing this player, that player's got an opportunity to change some of his own habits and become a better teammate for them, to help them win more games. And so, you know, it's... It was a simple 10-minute, 15-minute conversation, but it actually meant a lot more to me than that because, you know, this is this is a head coach of an NFL team and a, and a very influential general manager noticing. And so when you're going through the, the rigors of 05 and 06 and 08 and 10 and 12 and 14 and, and you're trying to build your identity and do it the right way, um, there's a lot of moments where you're like, shit, am I going to be able to do that? Is it going to work? Um, there's opportunities where we had the opportunities to represent some good players and we said no, you know, there's, so it's, it's just really rewarding that that's all now come full circle. And that doesn't mean this business is going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's always going to work. Um, but it, I'm, it's, uh, it's rewarding to know that we've stuck to our guns. We've stuck to our laurels, dealing with high character guys, we're giving guys an opportunity. Every single thing we say we're going to do, we're going to do whether it makes financial sense for the business or whether it doesn't because my, my word and reputation and my last name 
is significantly more important to me than making extra money today. And I think that's, I think you find a lot of people in this business, a lot of agents in this business for the wrong reasons. They like hanging around athletes. They like the stardom. They like, they like uh, the fruits that may come from being a, around professional athletes, but they don't actually enjoy doing the real work. You know, they, they like, they, they, you know, a lot of people think that the show Ballers is some, you know, accurate depiction of the business. Like, I'm here in an office in Minneapolis, like, we're grinding, we're over here working, I'm not hanging out on yachts. Like, that shit doesn't, that shit doesn't happen. If it does, it certainly doesn't happen in my business. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's good, because I, and, and the guys we're working for, I really, I would, if I was not in this business, these are guys that I would go to dinner with on a Thursday night. These are guys that I would, uh, introduced to my wife. These are I'm not doing this to make money. I have to make money because it's my business. But these are guys that I would genuinely hang out with, watch a game, be friends with, independent of what profession I was in. And that's why to me it's, you know, a 12-hour workday can seem like me playing golf for 12 hours. I enjoy it. I really enjoy it. And uh, I wouldn't enjoy it about dealing with knuckleheads and guys that were selfish and guys that didn't appreciate what we were doing. Because it would be a very transactional relationship. I would be representing them strictly to get a paycheck. And when when the, when when your relationships or your business is set up like that, it's like you're treating guys like stocks. They can go up and they can go down. You can make money and they can fire you. They can hire you. And there's no there's no tangible relationship there. What are the common traits that you see in in the guys that you've been around that are successful from a mentality standpoint? What are the what are the traits that you you notice or that you see? Um, the guys that I believe in, well, here's one, here's, I guess, to back up a second, um, the NFL, in my opinion, it's, and this is very, 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 very obvious to me, even though I may be in the minority to believe this, it's not about talent level. Everyone's talented at that level. It's about the opportunity. I mean... Um, I had no doubt Kirk Coleman was going to be a very good NFL player when he got the opportunity. Jonathan Casillas was undrafted. He's now played eight years and is the captain of the New York Giants defense. I had no doubt he was a good player. He needed the opportunity. Adam Thielen played Division II football at Minnesota Mankato and had 70 receptions for 1,000 yards for the Vikings. I had no doubt he was going to be a good football player if he got the opportunity. So it's very, 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 very difficult to get the opportunity in the National Football League if you're not a first or a second or third round pick. It's just very difficult. There's only so many reps to go around. All these coaches and GMs have egos too. They think, give me the prototypical size, give me the prototypical speed, and we'll teach the rest. If not for Bill Belichick and maybe going outside of the box with the Wes Walkers of the world, Danny Woodheads of the world, and and two tight end sets and being creative, he, in a weird way, uh, paved the way for a lot of oper- a lot of guys to get opportunities that I'm not so sure they would have gotten elsewhere. So, if I, if I believe that, then I then I want guys that are gonna that what you started the conversation with love the game. I want guys that love the game, want to play the game because they're the guys that are gonna work their ass off when no one's watching and give themselves the best opportunity to be successful. I want them to be high character. I want them to be intelligent because they got to go pick up a playbook. And knowing going in that those guys are going to get less opportunities than the others, they don't have the ability. They don't have the they, they don't have the affordability of not knowing the playbook. They don't. They can't afford to miss three practices. They can't afford 
to not come into camp in shape. They can't afford to be five minutes late to a meeting. The first round pick, the second round pick, you know what? Don't worry about it. We'll give you a second opportunity. We'll give you a third opportunity. Johnny Manziel will give you a fifth and sixth and seventh opportunity. When you're a fifth or sixth or undrafted player, you don't have that ability. You just you don't have that luxury because the first time you do it, they're going to say, we didn't need you anyway. That's why you went seventh round or undrafted, and we're going to replace you. So I look for guys that will buy into the process. I look for guys that are intelligent and mature and really want it and are disciplined. They're going to do the right things. When I'm not there, we got a lot of guys that I know are eating properly. we got a lot of guys that I know they're not going to take one day off from working out. Uh, those are the guys that are they're going to constantly try to get better. Um, we, got a- this, we got guys in this draft that I would bet you right now are going to go lower than they should and barring some catastrophic injury are going to be in the National Football League five, six, seven, eight, ten years from now. I can, I just know. There's a reason why we call them pros, right? Like, what is a pro? A pro is someone who shows up on time or early. A pro is someone who you don't have to worry about what they're doing at 3 a.m. A pro is somebody who is going to compete. A pro is somebody who is going to uh, be a great teammate. Uh, those elements, like what is a pro, uh, I think are, are just are, are at the core of what you're talking about. All right, here's what I want to end with. Um, I want to end with something that I call preferences. So... You have to pick one of these, and you can only pick one. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little difficult, but I'm going to ask that you just trust your instinct and, and go with one of these. So yeah. do you prefer preparation or performance? Do I prefer preparation or performance? Performance. Do you prefer yes sir guys or why guys? Yes sir guys. Do you prefer a system? Uh, yeah, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> I guess when I'm working with them, I prefer yes, sir, guys. Um, fundamentally, I prefer why, guys. Do you prefer a system or autonomy? Autonomy. Would you prefer to cheat and win or lose while being honest? Lose while being honest. Perfection or progression? Progression. Most valuable player or most improved player? Resume or eulogy? Eulogy. This generation or your parents' generation? This generation. Evaluations or descriptions? Evaluations or descriptions. Evaluations. So that one I'm gonna I'm gonna dive in. So because so the way I, how do you, why, why evaluations? How do you, how do you get to that, that place? Um, I said evaluations uh, because I was thinking in terms of other people can describe you. I, and I was just thinking abstractly, other people can describe you, but, but it may not necessarily be accurate. Whereas I was thinking like, Again, these are just two abstract words, but but I was thinking in terms of um, a self evaluation and and evaluating growth, evaluating the situation, evaluating opportunities. Um, that's just the first thing that came to my head. Cool. But 
Awesome. No particular reason, I guess. <laughs> positive feedback or negative feedback? Um, you know, it's funny because I, I believe that positive feedback is the right way to go. I just think that's more glasses half full. Me personally, I'm not good at that. I'm very to the point. And I think if you probably talk to every one of my staff that's sitting out here, they'd be like, you're not positive enough. <laughs> um, I just, it's, it's, a, it's something that I have to work on, but I don't, I don't take things like personally. Just like I try to be positive in the form of like, we got great things going on here at the company and we're doing positive things. Um, and I don't pat on the back all the time. I don't want to be patted on the back. I want to just get the job done. I don't care if you do it from Asia or you do it from our office or you do it up the street. But, like, I, I expect people to work hard and try their best. I'm more of the process than the result type of person. Um, but that's just, you know, I got certain strengths and I got a lot of weaknesses. So I'm just, life's too short. I don't know, you know, I'm just like, let's, let's go fucking get the job done and move forward. <laughs> culture, culture or talent? Momentum or the moment? Um, that's a tough one. You know, same thing. Like, I don't think I do a good enough job of living in the moment. I want to do a better job of that. Um, I'm probably more a momentum guy that needs to be better at, at being in the moment. Beautiful. Pumped up or calmed down? It's, it's, a, it's a good and a bad quality. That's the word I was going to use because earlier you said that your dad is, ne- is not someone who ever will slow down or retire, and you used the word satisfied. Um, I like to separate the word satisfied with the word complacent because to me in life, there should be an element of satisfaction uh, because I think self-satisfaction is linked to happiness. Uh, you know, it's sort of been studied that self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction is linked to happiness. So when people say that they're not satisfied, I think what they really mean is they don't want to be ever complacent. And I would imagine uh-huh. that that's, that's what you mean when you say satisfied is never complacent. And I think, I think a lot of times people need to feel a sense of satisfaction or pride. You know, when your guy does get drafted top five, maybe for you there is a day of, you know what, let's really be satisfied with this. Uh-huh. Uh, because I think a lot of times people lose that and that, that can be problematic. So I like to separate the two. I'm a, I'm a person of nuance, so words matter to me. Um, but I think like to me, complacency is the enemy of success. Um, 
but I don't think satisfaction necessarily is. I think satisfaction is something that is really valuable to have in your life. Um, but complacency is death. So, um, that just, just my own interpretation yeah. of the words. That complacency is just not in my, it's not in my DNA. I don't have, I'm not really not ever worried about that. Yeah. I, there's just, to how you started the conversation earlier when, when you said, you know what, I'm seeing these other people that are quote unquote the most successful in my business. I can do everything they can do and more. I still think that today about all these different other industries and businesses that I'm not even in. Like, why is he able to write that movie? Why is he able to have his TV show? Why is he able to write this book? Why is he able to grow this foundation? So there's never going to be complacency on mine because there's still 10 million things I want to do in this world. And that's just, that's just the, the DNA I have. And I think, you know, you start to, you know, you got two children now. I got one and it's, um, the biggest challenge for me now is like all I really want to do when I when I'm working or even I have free time is just like spend time there um which that's a that's a whole new set of challenges that, but it's those are these are good good problems to have good challenges to have and, um trying to figure out how to make the day 48 hours instead of 24 hours I think is the the biggest project and challenge right now sure do you prefer to be liked or respected Respected. I'm certainly not that liked. <laughs> uh, how about if I added feared onto that? Would fe- would you want to be feared or respected? Respected. I don't. I don't want to be feared. I mean, I'm not. That's too far. I don't want to be feared. I don't. I think I'm likable, but I don't really care if people like me or not. Um, I go out of my way to try to treat everyone with respect. But I'm very matter of fact. I mean, I talk to my wife the same way I talk to Jerry Jones, the same way I talk to you. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not overly, I'm not overly concerned, um, I'm not overly concerned if that meshes, if that opinion is popular or unpopular, right or wrong, like, dislike, like, people will, people will create their own opinions, I just, it doesn't matter to me, like, there's a lot of bullshit out there, there's a lot of people that have ridiculous opinions out there you know life's too short like I've made enough friends I got enough colleagues like I'm confident in myself I'm not saying I'm always right but I don't if that meshes with something else that doesn't doesn't matter to me Do, do you think that you have clients who would answer feared over respected they might you know I think maybe because football is such a warrior gladiator type sport and that that may fuel them. I mean, maybe there's, you know. I, I wonder, especially your, your, your defense. Yeah, I wonder, especially your defensive players, your Casillas, uh, Coleman, you know, those guys, you know, because I think there is an element of fear that's very real in football. And um, I wonder if they would ever answer feared. Like, I wonder if Troy Palomalo would rather be respected or feared. Or, um, you know, I, I just think it's an interesting thing if Ray Lewis or, or James Harrison, or wh- whoever those guys are, would, would rather be feared or respected. It's just a... Yeah, I mean, I think if you... Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear, like, I think most of my guys, because of their personalities, would say respected, but, like, I wouldn't be surprised if you asked, like, Rodney Harrison, when he was knocking people's heads off in the in the 90s, I bet he would say fear. Like, I want that receiver coming across the middle to fear me. Yeah. I think... Um, in fact, I think I've seen him on, like, you know, whether it's 
one of those NFL network shows of like in the life or whatever they're called. I think I've heard them say, I didn't care if they liked me. I wanted them to fear me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Interesting. So, Transformational leadership or transactional leadership? Transformational. That's the easy one. You mentioned transaction earlier. Uh, love winning or hate losing? Hate losing. Risk taker or rule follower? Risk taker. Would you rather have been a starter on a losing team or towel waiver on a winning team? Um, it would depend at what level, but being that I was a competitor, I wanted to play. Um, that's kind of the example I gave earlier of like, I could be a, a towel waiver on a really good hockey team, or I can go be a starter on a basketball team. Winning in high school, I wanted to play. Like, I wanted to compete. And if I'm sitting at the end of the bench, I can't go compete. And so I'd be competing in practice, but not be able to compete when the lights are on. That wouldn't have sat well with me. Yeah, I think you go to your experience at Tulane. If you weren't in that top six or top four or whatever it would have been, that would have been a different experience for you uh, because you didn't care that you weren't number one or two because you probably liked the idea of being part of a good team, but you still wanted to make an impact. So I think that's that spoke to it. And if I, if I believe that I really just wasn't good enough or couldn't get good enough to get onto the field or the corner of the ice, then I probably would have given it up. You know, thing, I want to be doing things that I'm good at um, or have the ability to become good at. Like, I'm a, I was I didn't play golf in high school or anything like that. Like when I moved back here I joined a joined a country club and like fell in love with golf and like you know how challenging the sport it is. It's a it's a grind. Um, no, I don't know what you're talking about, Blake. No idea. None. It's 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 honestly it's it's really easy. I go out, I shoot seventy two every time. I don't even have to work on my swing. And uh, I'm always ha- I'm just I never get frustrated on the golf course. I don't I have no clue what you're talking about. Hopefully you can since since people are only gonna listen to this and not see my face, yes, there's a lot of sarcasm in my in my tone. Of course. It's a it's a grind, it's a challenge, and like I enjoy that challenge. Like it's that's that's part of being a competitor. Like you gotta enjoy the the challenge and I probably don't I, you know I don't again I hate practicing like I only have so many hours I'm not going to sit in the fucking range and hit balls and not even be able to critique myself because I'm not a fucking golfer and I'm not a coach I want to go compete I want to go see if I can just somehow through osmosis just like get better at a game without practicing it's kind of ignorant I'm an idiot isn't it it's the most it's the most ignorant absurd sport <laughs> and, and you know you said something so you said you know I don't really love to do something unless I'm good at it And most athletes that I talk to, one of the reasons they play their sport is because they've been good at it and they they enjoy being good at something, which which I completely understand. And I always tell people like, you know, every commencement speech always says, love what you do or follow your passion. I'm like, dude, follow something that you're good at because I could be really passionate about, you know, collecting baseball cards. But and that that's probably a little outdated. Uh, You know, I could be really uh, passionate about video games, but if I'm not good at it. Like, I could try as hard as I want, but I might not ever be good enough to be a professional gamer. Um, right. So, like, I was really passionate about basketball. Like, you probably didn't find a seventh grader as passionate about basketball in this country as I was. But I was five foot nothing, 100 nothing, couldn't really jump. And, you know, I, it, I was not built to play that sport. So I think it is important to follow something you're good at. But back to golf real quick. I've never spent so much time on something that I'm so bad at in my life. Like I, yeah. I, and for me, there's also value in doing that, which is, you know, 
I know I'm not good at this, but let's see if I can get mediocre at it and, and still fall in love. You mentioned the word process throughout our talk today. Let's fall in love with the process of trying to get better. And I only have so much time to practice. And so, you know, when I am there, let's see if I can just compete with what I've got. And I think so much of life is also just showing up and saying, you know what? I'm not going to be amazing at this, but maybe I can just be mediocre and, or maybe I can hit one shot like flush and get that satisfaction. And I think that's what brings people back to golf so often is that idea of maybe I'll have that one shot that will be like I'm playing at at Augusta at the Masters. Uh, And that's that sport is one of the only sports where you can experience that. I can't experience that as a football player. Uh, I can't get on the ice and shoot a slap shot like Alex Ovechkin. I can't throw a fastball, you know, like Clayton Kershaw. I can't dunk a basketball like – you know, LeBron James, but I can hit a golf shot, maybe one golf shot, my seven iron, I might hit it like Rory McIlroy. And I think that's what makes golf pretty special. Absolutely. I I totally agree. Risk taker or rule follower? Risk taker. Uh, We already did that one. one. Balance or specific obsession? Reality is probably specific obsession. Fear of failure or fearless? Fearless. Yeah, you hit on that one earlier where you said, you know what, I'm going to go out on my own. And it also goes with risk taker. I'm going to go out on my own. Yeah. And, you know, if I fail at this, I'll, I'll fail at it. Um, if, you read, if you read a lot of books about the most successful people in our world, our country, at these big businesses, every single one of them has failed multiple times. Failure is not a bad word. It's how you respond from failure, which I think a lot of people are scared of, but they really shouldn't be. It's, everyone tries to come up with reasons uh, not to do something and a reason to do something. Yeah, and it's all about how you interpret the question, right? Because you mentioned earlier, it's like when we were talking about evaluations and descriptions, like it, it matters how you're interpreting it. So these are loaded. Right. These are completely loaded with no context. And I get that. Right. That's why I like them because we have to actually yeah. think about them. Um, right. But for me... Fear of failure also gets a bad rap uh, because, yes, everything we would read, every commencement speech, every successful person would be like, fail, fail over, fail forward, fail again, keep going. And for me, when I study elite people, there is a fear of failure in them that they put into their preparation, that they put into their work ethic. So, yes, at 28, you're going out on your own and you're going to do all this stuff. But I'm, there was probably an element of you that's saying, I'm doing this and I'm going to make this work. And I and I am... And, and fear of failure might be too strong to label it what you're labeling it. But for an athlete to wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning and do some things, there is some fear of failure that drives that. You know, it's failure is not an option for me in the preparation. The difference is when we're performing, that doesn't exist anymore for Kobe, for Tom Brady, for Usain right. Bolt, for Michael Phelps, for Serena Williams. But when they're training, that's definitely real. Um, those, those athletes, yep. they all talk about, I'm afraid to fail. Failure is not an option. But when they step on the floor, they're not thinking about failure. They're thinking about fearlessness. And that, sure. that, that is the difference of it, for me at least. For sure. Um, for sure. Disassociate from pressure or embrace it? Embrace it. Do you trust your head or your gut? Both. I guess one or the other. Like gut. That's where I would lean with you. Um, so... That's the end of the preferences. Uh, Blake, we've known each other for a little over 10 years now. I was thinking about it. Like, you know, we met by chance randomly. 
Um, and I've enjoyed our conversations over the years. And it's been fun to see you, you know, grow. I think, you know, I, I, I met with you when you were out in L.A. Uh, and, and sort of just getting started out there. Um, and then I think that's when we first met. Uh, and, and to see you sort of create this dream for yourself, being back in your hometown, in a town that I would imagine there's not a whole lot of sports agents. Um, and, no. and to just be about the substance of doing great work uh, is, is really cool to see and, and special. And uh, you've got a fascinating journey, so I've enjoyed this as well uh, and, and learning about the journey. Um, Appreciate it. Before we go, can you just let people know how they can find you, how they can learn about you? If there's some great college football player listening to this podcast by chance, how he can connect with you, um, just tell people where they can find you. Yeah, I mean, the company's called Gives Two for Athletes, and you can look us up online. And, um, you can call us anytime. You can see us on, uh, you know, I, I'm on Twitter myself, at Blake Ferris, but, but I, get, I get shit from my staff all the time that I'm a little too opinionated on there, so I don't know if you want to check that out. So I'm nodding my head up and down, because sometimes Blake will tweet stuff, and I will get this visceral reaction that is just maybe tension or... And, uh, and I'm sure your staff is like, you know, not to say that you're Donald Trump by any means of imagination or by any stretch of imagination. Um, but yeah, I think Blake is, Blake's an honest guy through and through. And, you know, I would definitely follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow there because he's not going to give you what the sheep are saying. He's not going to give you what the group think is, is saying. He's going to give you what his opinion is. And, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for that. Um, sometimes I want to call you and be like, Blake, dude, slow it, slow your roll a little bit with the 140 tweet. Um, but, uh, he's definitely a good follow on there. Uh, so Blake, thanks again for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, uh, we will talk again real soon.